0: Hi everyone, Allison here. As you'll be able to tell when you listen to this episode, we recorded this lovely interview with Ariel Caldwell back in March before public libraries across BC were closing down and the COVID-19 pandemic changed pretty much everything. So since then, Ariel's role has changed significantly, but nonetheless, we really loved this conversation and wanted to share it with you as a reminder of different times and food for thought for times ahead. Take care and enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Karen. And I'm Allison. And we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. Today,
0: our guest is Ariel Caldwell. Ariel is a teen services librarian at Vancouver Public Library and coordinates VPL's Connection to Kith and Kin program, a series of person-centered, trauma-informed indigenous genealogy workshops. Ariel teaches services for young adults at the UBC School of Information, as it is now called, and integrates into her teaching and her professional work, a commitment to community-led librarianship. We're super excited to talk to Ariel today about teen services and community-led work. Thank you for joining us! Yay, it's my pleasure to be here!
1: (laughs) So, anything you want to add in introduction or anything else you'd like listeners to know? Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I
2: should perhaps mention that I grew up. On the traditional territory of the Snoqualmie people in the U.S. outside of what is now Seattle and I moved from that area up towards Bellingham and I lived in Bellingham uh, for nine years before I moved here and that may turn up later in the story.
0: Okay, Mm -hmm. teaser! (laughs) Can you tell us a bit about how you got into this field and also like this area of interest where you work and How and why did you decide to pursue the kind of work that you do?
2: I think that's tied in with one of your questions that comes in just a second. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Do you want me to just ask the other? Yeah, let's just skip to the... Sure. Okay, so I know that before you became a librarian, you worked in an alternative school, and we recently interviewed a teacher librarian for the podcast named Elaine Sue, whose background was also in alternative education, which was also a big influencer of me for why I became a librarian. I'm really curious if you could speak a bit about how that work might have affected your decision to become a librarian, and how you've drawn that experience in your work that you do now. I actually
2: taught in two different alternative high schools in the States without a teaching degree and starting when I was 19. So part of what came along with that is working with young people as a young person and also looking at the different ways power works. And I think that working in an alternative school did inform my librarianship because I would tried the teacher thing, but not in a way where I had traditional teacher power. So just because I said it's time to sit down didn't mean that anyone was going to sit down. So I needed to work in this collaborative way. And I knew that I le- liked working with teens. I knew that I liked working with young people. I knew that I like that kind of energy, but I also didn't, after doing all that work and seeing how hard it is to be a teacher and how many hours and how grueling it can be. I knew that I wanted to work with young people, but I didn't necessarily want to be a teacher. This was also around the time when, because I'd lived abroad, I'd lived in Chile for a while. I knew that I wanted to live outside the U.S. and I was kind of looking for a way to make that jump. I was working in corporate America for a little while after teaching, which was not my gig. (laughs) Um, Gave it a try, not my thing. Uh, And I was looking for a way to change career and change location. And I knew that I wanted to move to Canada. So with that in mind, it was really, in some ways, a natural fit. I was working part-time in a library, in the Bellingham Library for a while, as a clerk. And I knew that working in a library was something that I would want to do. So I applied to what was then called Slace. (laughs) And... um, Richard Hopkins interviewed me at the Chapters at Granville and Broadway, like the weekend before
0: Christmas. Did they interview everybody to I get, didn't get interviewed? Interview? He interviewed me. Like, Whoa! And I am <laughs> <That's> so scary. <laughs> I had
2: no idea what a, like what a personal commitment it was to meet someone at Chapters at Granville and Broadway the weekend before Christmas. <laughs> so I am <laughs> eternally grateful to Richard Hopkins for doing that. And I applied and I got into school and that's how I moved to Canada, for one, but two, that was also that experience in the States of teaching, working with young people, knowing that I wanted to work with them, but not necessarily knowing how that kind of opened into librarianship. And the other thing is that I'd done a lot of different things before I became a librarian. I didn't think, like I did my undergrad, it's in Spanish with a focus on Spanish lit, like My other language is Spanish, which so in that way, I didn't necessarily have a straight ahead career path. What are you going to do with that? So becoming a librarian is one of the few jobs where it actually really pays to know a little bit about a lot of things. I was a volunteer firefighter. I taught, I worked in a bagel deli. I worked on an organic vegetable farm, corporate America. So I'd done a bunch of different things and librarianship pulled it together in a way. So that's the story of how I came and sort of why Mm -hmm. I think the other thing about alternative school in particular is that alternative school has a lot to do with following the train of your ideas Mm -hmm. and being excited about what you're interested in and your curiosity. And I think alternative education tries to bring that to the fore, right? Like by allowing young people to be who they are and be excited about what they're excited about. As a teacher, it's like, okay, how do I support that? Um, and librarianship is the same way. So, yeah. Cool. Wow. I think also there's an emotional support piece mm-hmm. that we don't really talk about in library school, but we do, out in the world, we have emotional relationships with people. And alternative school, again, instead of, dare I say, being part of the machine that like pushes young people out Uh, traditional education there is often a more emotional piece that Mm -hmm. is allowed to happen in alternative education that I think does also translate to library school or sorry to working in a library
1: well also in the way that you taught in the library school
0: (laughs) (laughs) but we'll we'll come back to that later okay I'm curious
1: about that also I recently I'm taking Jennifer Douglas's personal archives class so I guess different from libraries but yeah, recently we've been talking more about emotion and affect and just because, you know, we, we talk about how we don't talk about it as well and how it's such, you know, it's such a big part of the work as well, like emotional labor and also just being maybe emotionally attached to records or, um, yeah, when people look at things, it's it can be emotional. So, yeah, it's so interesting. Anyway, so as the teen services librarian, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Like what kind of things you do on a daily, weekly or monthly basis?
2: I think this is a really, (laughs) uh, this is kind of a funny question. (laughs) Um, So as a teen services librarian, I think in a nutshell, my job is to make the library safe and accessible for teens at VPL. That's 13 to you know, until you turn 19. Um, but also we don't card people. So, you know. <laughs> if you kind
0: of look like a teen. <laughs> if you kind of look like a teen
2: and or act like a teen, um, there's, some, there's some crossover there. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do, we do programming and um, keep track of the collection. So there's programming work, there's collections work, there's services, there's also advocacy, um, advocating into the staff about working with young people, helping other staff feel more comfortable. Um, There's just kind of having teens as our primary, um, the people we watch out for in a way, whether we're talking about VPL strategic goals or whether we're talking about, um, or how we have set up our branch, where's the teen section. Mm -hmm. Um, So I personally work in the Northeast area of Vancouver and Vancouver um, at this point, we've sort of, for staffing reasons, we have divided the city into quadrants. So the northeast area includes Britannia, Mount Pleasant, Hastings, and Natsumat Strathcona. So I'm based at Britannia, and I have responsibility for programming in all these areas. But it might mean I can't necessarily be in all the places all the time, so other staff may do programs as well. But... This is kind of the neighborhood that I run around in. I'm also supposed to work at Central one day a week, which is usually Thursdays. But that said, I might have meetings at Central on a different day. So when you ask a little bit more about what my job entails, it involves a lot of scheduling and a (laughs) lot of talking to people. I talk to people all the time. And I manage stuff. So, for example, I walk around with a... like the kind of duotang you have when you're in maybe grade six with papers stuffed in it, because (laughs) I don't necessarily know which branch I'm gonna be in when I have time to work on that thing. So I know that other people use electronic devices and perhaps don't kill trees, and that's probably a better way to go. But after a bunch of head injuries, it's really helpful for me to not have to spend all my time on a screen. So in that way, Stuff management means keeping track of my stuff, but also, if I'm going to visit a class at Britannia Secondary, but the book I want is at Natsumat Strathcona, and I am currently at Central Library, <laughs> how do I get me and the book to the class that is happening in two days? So figuring out where this stuff is and where I am and where we all need to go at the end is also a big part of my job. Um, I, I walk around with a granny cart of books and I go visit different places. And somebody recently told me that I should call it a tome trolley, um, hmm. because granny cart is perhaps ageist. So, um, putting that out there for all the listeners <laughs> that perhaps it is called a tome trolley. Um, So yeah, I do a lot of visits and I thought like on a daily basis, as I said, I talk to people. I do so much talking. I talk to so many different people. Um, There's different staff teams. There's my supervisor who's downtown. There's kids I know. There's kids I don't know. There's staff I know, there's community partners. And so depending on my location that day, at that point in time, just the amount of human contact that I have, which is really meaningful to me, don't get me wrong. This is actually one of my favorite parts of the job. So much gets done through conversation. And I love that. So one day, it might've been yesterday, but I think it also happened a week or two ago, where before I'd even gotten into Britannia, I'd had two or three meaningful conversations and set up talking to this youth worker about this kid who could potentially be really interested in this program over spring break and talking to the school librarian about how I needed to visit her on Wednesday to talk about work experience for indigenous youth. So I love that collaborative aspect. And um, at the end of the day, Sometimes I'm just done talking (laughs) to people. I write a lot of email, which I know sounds super boring, but it's definitely part of the job. Some workplaces use email more than others. I think VPL is an email-heavy organization. (laughs) Um, We are more likely to just rip off an email than pick up the phone and call someone. I like to walk outside and ask. um, But some people are like, why didn't you look that up on our intranet? I would rather ask a person. So that's my own personal preference, but I do write a lot of email and I plan things. So whether that's programs or meetings, writing agendas for things, but again, refer to point one, I plan things with other people. So it's super collaborative. Um, I think as a teen services person, and maybe this is true in uh, in other library systems as well, there's a lot of service providers who work with youth. I think so that talking to people part I would hope would be true in other places as well. Um, And then that makes me think about some of the really small towns that um, I've heard about. And maybe there aren't a lot of other teen serving organizations in town. And if that's the case, um, I would be really curious to know from listeners who is it that they talk to. and maybe it's colleagues who work in another system, like, who are the allies? Because we are a net for young people, so how? who are the other people who are in that net? Also, I document things, which is not my favorite part. Uh, spreadsheets and reports and um, filling out forms. I'm supposed to update five calendars every time I do a thing or make a plan, so I have my personal calendar. I have my Outlook calendar. I have the branch calendar. I have the teen services calendar, and I've for oh, and then the paper. No, yeah, the paper calendar that's in the branch. Um, so I do my best, but Frank, I love your face. <laughs> I love it. Like isn't that one? Like, we are both
0: blinking <laughs> with our mouths open,
2: more or less. <laughs> this is not my favorite part of the job. And so another part of that is how much so I kind of call that bureaucracy, but I have to remember, let's say I update two of those calendars and then I get interrupted and then I can't remember whether I. So then I have to go check those calendars and see whether I did it. But then let's say then my community partner gets back to me and says, actually, not Friday. Let's do it next Tuesday. Then I have to go back and through those calendars again to make that change. Um, Brutal. Theoretically, that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some things, I I go to visit the Pathways to Education program um, every two weeks, and that's at, uh, it's a community partner program. Pathways to Education serves uh, youth in the V6A postal code. So Youth who live in the V6A or who are associated with the V6A, like maybe they go to Raycam, mm-hmm. um, the community center called Raycam. Uh they get tutoring support. They get if they attend their tutoring, um, they can earn grocery cards or bus passes, their families get support. And the whole idea is that Pathways stays with those young people. They've got youth workers that help them and their families. Um, and they stay with those young people until they graduate grade 12. And last year was the first year that we had young people graduate. Ooh, cool. wow. So it was so lovely to be able to yell when they are crossing the stage. Mm. Um, and so I go every two weeks and I bring a batch of books to both tutoring sites. Um, so that's like a small curated collection based on what I hear from the youth workers. Like it's Black History Month or, um... I'm hearing the kids talk about consent or poetry. They have to do poetry competitions, poetry and voice. Um, How do you deal with disappointment? All kinds of different things like this kind of reading level. They're doing science projects, but they don't want to talk about it. Could you bring us some books? Um, So I bring those over and every two weeks I switch it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you asked about monthly. So there's other visits that i do monthly like go to broadway youth resource center um we have a teen advisory group at the britannia branch my colleagues have more teen advisory groups than i do um demographically speaking we have found that in our neighborhood like it's um, hard to bring people out so i go out to my partner's programs perhaps more than my colleagues might um We go to schools. That's not necessarily monthly. That one for me is like, whenever. Mm -hmm. I got asked to be a guest judge for the poetry and voice competition at Britannia. Congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Um, (laughs) Being a guest judge was awesome. I got to sit in an auditorium and listen to teens recite poetry for two hours. Maybe it was two and a half. Wow. They had to memorize it and then recite. And these were the kids who had won their classroom competitions.
0: So they were good.
2: So they were good. Yeah. And I was a performance judge. So I had very wow. specific criteria that I was supposed to mark for. Um, and then the next day I got to go back and judge the the junior winner and the senior winner went head to head. Whoa. Um, that was really hard. They were so good. So sometimes I get surprise invites like that. I was asked to be a book in the Britannia Secondary's Human Library, talking about being a librarian with a head injury. I think the title for my book was The Year I Faked It, because (laughs) I really struggled to read after I hit my head. Yeah, that was an interesting experience. So, and then there's a few things that we do seasonally, like train teens to become reading buddies. I couldn't really think of other examples, but there's other stuff that we do. Teen Summer Reading Club. Teen Summer Reading Club. That's like, we're... This year, for the first time, we're doing a retreat, all the teen librarians together. Mm. And we're going to work together to put Teen Summer Challenge together. I think in the past, it's really fallen on some very specific people's shoulders. And they've done a knockout job. Um, and so we're looking to spread that around a little bit more this year. And I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, Teen Summer Challenge has only gotten cooler and cooler, I have
0: to say. Wow. <laughs> so... The reason I asked you this question in this weird way is, uh, I don't think I've said this yet, but I took Ariel's class uh, at Slace when I was a student, and I was kind of amazed by the vast variety of things that you do. And like some things that I wouldn't have thought you spend so much time on, you spend a lot of time on, like updating five calendars (laughs) and other things that I might think that you would spend a lot of time on, like programming actually in your neighborhood, isn't such a priority. So I think it's really interesting to kind of like hear how that all shakes out for different people. different Contexts. And
2: that's a really good point is because it shakes out differently for different people, perhaps uh, based on community need Mm -hmm. and also the systemic support so um and also our individual strengths so the other thing is that i've been doing this since 2013 like in this job Mm -hmm. but like i said i'd already worked in an alternative school so there are things i can whip out really fast um there are things that my colleagues might take more time for but also deliver programs that knock me out of the park (laughs) i'm like whoa (laughs) i i you know i would have done X, Y, and Z. And this person has also added A, B, and C. Oh, yeah. Like, well done. Mm -hmm. So I think that really speaks to different people's strengths. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, I forgot what I was going to say about that. Yeah, different people's strengths, different neighborhoods need different things Mm -hmm. and expectations of what we think we're going to put into it. I guess the part about being in the job for five years is that some things I know I can do quickly, or even gloss over. Yeah, and other things I'm really interested in digging into.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank oh. you. Yeah, that's just so much stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, that's so exciting. That's only that's what I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk about some of like like the largest challenges in in that role? Because it's like I'm kind of thinking like, how do you have the time? Yeah. (laughs) Well, actually, that was my first thought about
2: challenges. Um, My first challenge is the boundary of space and time Mm -hmm. in the sense also saying no. Mm -hmm. Right. That learning to manage my time and prioritize. And it's really tricky because there's a lot of interruption as well. If you think that you're going to get to go sit in an office and be quiet and plan, that's probably not how it's going to go. So uh, remembering details is really tricky. That's another challenge. I need to remember what I've said to what person. So when I'm outside Britannia and somebody says, hey, can, you know, I've got a kid who's interested in coding. And I say, we have a spring break program for that. I have to remember to send that person the poster, Mm -hmm. which I know is like a small detail. But if you haven't walked in the door yet, and you're having these conversations, how many of them happen over the course of a day? Um, So I keep a really, like I keep a fairly minute to-do list. Um, One of my fears is that not only will I forget to do what I said I would do, I'm also really worried about not going to the right place. There have been times, especially when I'm stressed out, when I'm on a bus and I think to myself, where am I supposed to get off? Um, where am I going? Um, and I write it all down and that's why I have a paper calendar. Um, so I also have to remember what I need to say to people. Like I might say to you, hey, coding poster, I will send it. But then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I need to tell Karen this and Jody this and Desiree that. And so there's that, There's a lot of that going on. For me, it's important to be available when people want to talk. So then when do I get the form filling out done? That's a challenge with time and prioritization. Staying late, not staying late, prioritizing what I do, prioritizing the person who's in front of me. I think also a challenge is being one teen librarian for a number of branches. And I would like to shout out to my colleague, Jean, who I think has 11 branches. Like she's, Whoa. she takes care of the whole West side, excuse me, the West side of the city. So the Southwest and the Northwest. And it's just not humanly possible to <laughs> be present in all these places. So how do we give the best service possible when we can't be in the actual location to build the relationships with the young people Mm -hmm. some like i met brit a lot so i have a better chance there i've been there a long time i was there while i was recovering from a head injury so i got to spend more time there than maybe i would have but otherwise um you know doing a teen advisory group and not being able to follow through with the kids the next day yeah come on by so that's a challenge yeah there's there's other challenges. I would say some of the things that I love about it, though, I love the creativity. Mm. I love being able to come up with new stuff based on what I hear from the community and also just riffing on other people's ideas. So I love the challenge of that as well. There was a point in time where I was working at the Terry Salmon branch, which is in the Hillcrest Community Center. And the teen advisory group there really wanted to beat the Seattle Public Library's, I think it's a world record for uh, domino books. Oh. <laughs> I think, if I remember right, and this is going back years, I think the record was either 5,000 or 6,000 book dominoes. And the Terry Salmon kids wanted to beat that record. So I investigated what it takes to get a Guinness record. Um, I advocated to the central library that we should be able to do this. We thought about doing it at central, but then I think the facilities people, first of all, were horrified that we might need 5,000 books. Um, How, where are you going to keep them? How are you going to keep them? We can't pull them off the shelves and put them back on. That's ridiculous. So I need to report back to these teens. Anyway, I'm getting distracted with the story, but the long <laughs> and the short of it is, um, how do we solve this problem? And how much back and forth and advocacy can I put into trying to make these kids' dream come true? We ended up doing a speed test to know how many books we would need. We sent them down the stairs at the Hillcrest branch, and then like, we timed it and did math, and it was great. Um, but we didn't end up being able to do that 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 world record-breaking program. I love the improv and the spontaneity of working with young people. Like, you never know what they're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And it's also fun to make more fun. Like, how cool is it to have a job where you, your job is to make things fun? Besides the five calendars. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Fun, well for, fun. Other people, maybe. Maybe. for other people, maybe. Not always for you. <laughs> no. Um, and
2: lastly, I think... One of the things I love most about this job is the community. Um, I am so fortunate to work in this neighborhood and work with these community partners, work with these youth, work
0: in the place I live. I'm so lucky and it fills me up so much. While you're thinking about community, do you want to talk about what community-led librarianship is for you? Like you've, I think you've touched on some of the core parts that we've heard from other people, like, you know building relationships with people, getting to understand people's needs or interests or strengths that you can, like, build on or respond to. Are there other parts of that that you want to talk speak about? Yeah, I think um, for me what
2: community-led means is really listening. Mm -hmm. Listening and then acting. So I kind of mentioned it in some of the things that I said, but the idea that I go listen. And that's part of the build, building relationships part. Mm-hmm. I think there might be a perception that people need to be outgoing to be community librarians because you need to talk to strangers. And yeah, you need to talk to strangers, but you don't have to be like the cheery face that's like, hi, you know, you don't have to do that. You can sidle up next to people and just be your quiet self and listen. And have conversation, but you don't have to just like, jump in people's faces. So I think that listening piece is really important because at some point, um, someone will say something that there's a really natural fit to the library. And I think there's a lot of perceptions uh, in the world at large about what a library is. And maybe those are old ideas. Um Libraries have been maybe more rigid, uh, more unwelcoming. And I think that we're really doing a lot of work to be inclusive and open and change with the times, so to speak. And so, but if I try and tell somebody that, like, hey, we're different, like instantly, like, what do you think? You're both like, mm, no. <laughs> um, so listening for that opening, And then being able to say, well, actually, the library has a database of grants you can apply for. That's really useful to that person in that moment. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to get there if I'm not already engaged in
0: listening. Mm -hmm. I do want to bounce back to the question before that that I skipped, which is that you focus on trauma-informed work and I was wondering if you could explain what that is for people who haven't really heard of it before. I feel like I'm
2: not gonna do it justice
0: to explain what it is. You can also name drop resources.
2: My favorite resource for trauma-informed practice is uh, the trauma, the tip guide, trauma-informed practice guide put out by the BC Women's Collective, I think, um, in 2013.
0: Very detailed citation. I'm pretty sure I got it right. (laughs) So
2: I know you're going to fact check me because I heard you fact check somebody else. Um, And I think I like starting with that resource because even though it's not written for librarians, um, I heard about it through a Pro-D event that I was invited to attend alongside the VSB, the Vancouver School Board, which is kind of unusual, but I'm really appreciative that I had that chance. And I would like to tell a story from it if
0: I remember.
2: Um, So, the thing is, as we walk through this world, so many people have experienced trauma of one kind and another. And we can't measure it against each other. It's not like, oh, well, my trauma is more serious than your trauma. The body responds to trauma like, You can't measure it exactly but we have these responses and these responses are physiological and turn up so karen i can't remember exactly what you said i guess it was about the emotional nature of the work i think that there's also a trauma-informed part of the work that we don't really talk about which is when you're walking around with trauma depending on how hot it is for you at any point in time, you could get triggered. Um, And so as library staff, we might not understand why someone is reacting the way that they are to something that seems really reasonable to us. So I would like to tell that story from the Pro D-Day with the Vancouver School Board. One of the most meaningful things that I heard, and this is my interpretation of someone else's story. I don't know her name. (laughs) This was years ago, but a youth worker who's now doing a master's or a PhD. She was a youth worker in a Portland, Oregon youth shelter. And there was a young person who was coming in from the street. And the way it works is that you have to put your weapons in a box and they will keep them for you until you're leaving the shelter and then they'll give you your weapons back. And so this youth worker was asking this young person to put his gun in the box. And the youth was just reacting really, really strongly and wasn't gonna do it. But she couldn't let him in to have dinner until he put his gun in the box. Um, It's a safety concern. Nobody else has their guns or their knives. So you have to put your gun in the box. And she said, I was being so nice. I was doing everything I could And another youth came and got involved and was like, hey dude, just put your gun in the box. It's going to be okay, Like, they'll give it back to you. I've done this before, this is how it works. But this young person was having a really hard time. He did put his gun in the box. It was the start of a longer relationship. And again, the importance of relationships. This youth worker learned much later, maybe a year or two years later, after that young person had started therapy, that her voice sounded like someone who had heard him in the past. So she had no idea. And she didn't understand why this young person was responding the way he was. And it wasn't about her. And there wasn't anything that she could have done differently. And so that to me is sort of, that story I think is really foundational to what we understand about trauma-informed practice in a library context. If something that you think is pretty reasonable gets a reaction that seems unreasonable, something else might be going on. And so how do we, as library workers, work in that situation? So recognizing that it might not be about you recognizing when to hand off to a colleague, being able to de-escalate situations. Also something I do when I, I teach is we talk about body language.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember it. It was fun <laughs> and weird. <laughs> it is fun and it is weird and it is highly unusual in <laughs> master's level courses, but
2: it is so important in public library work because if you come in of your institutional power and you try to get a teenager to do something or an adult for that matter but if you try and exert that power that you feel is inherent in your librarianship the chance of it going awry is pretty strong and it's really hard to do this without over a recording because I can't show you what I'm doing with my body but just imagine if you think about I'm going to say like a really high powered businessman Like how he would walk into the library and ask you for a book. Mm -hmm. And you think about how he stands. You think about what words he uses. You think about how he touches his face or he doesn't. All these different little things that go into how we read each other. And then you think about somebody who maybe doesn't hold themselves up straight. Mm -hmm. Or maybe looks at the counter instead of looking at you. Um, And you think about how you might interact with that person a little bit differently because we respond in turn to someone else. So I feel like that's fundamental to
0: working in a public library. I also feel like I've gone down a path that is okay. But you know what, the thing that it's making me think of right now is, uh, sometimes when I'm working at the desk, the thing that I think makes me think of this the most often is when kids will come around the desk to talk to me. Because it's, like, so weird for them to talk over a desk and they can't really see what I'm doing and they want to lean on me or something, (laughs) right? And all of a sudden this funny structure that we've set up that has certain power dynamics of, like, I sit behind the desk in a Mm. chair and I see the computer and you stand on the other side and ask me for things is totally disrupted because you're like... Okay, kid. You know the veil is gone. <laughs> yep, we are really just s- a person, <laughs> and we spell it like that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I spelled it wrong again. That's now three times, and you are better at me at spelling than me. That's okay. So tell me um, how it goes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That is an example that I think I don't I know, know. You could imagine it. Yeah, and, and sure. what we did in the class was practice that, right? Of practice, what can you do? in an interaction with somebody who might be upset or triggered or a little volatile to, instead of, you know, many of the ways we approach one another could escalate it. Instead, how can you talk to somebody and use your body language to diffuse the situation? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I loved it. It was one of the most useful things. I probably use it every day.
2: Wow. That makes me feel so good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like, I think also I come off as pretty unassuming and I try and channel that in my body language. I often laugh, you know, or, you know, come up beside somebody or, you know, shrug and make a goofy face. When they ask me a thing, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know about cars. You're going to have to tell me that name like four times while I try and search this for you. And all of a sudden, they're the expert,
2: right? Yeah. Um, And how much better that interaction goes when you've got a little bit of humor, but also you're reading the person because clearly you're not laughing at them. Yes. (laughs) Right? And you're also not demeaning yourself to a point where they're like, "Oh, this person is incompetent. Yeah. Like, you're able to manage that line. And I think that's one of the most important things you can do, actually. People who can't modulate how they, I'm going to say how they roll, people who can't modulate how they come across I think it's a much bigger struggle. Mm -hmm. I can think of some people I know who only come in like the expert Mm -hmm. and they really struggle with teenagers. They struggle with other people who might perceive them as being antagonistic or bossy or just jerks um, because they can't modulate how they're perceived. So there's a whole lot lot there. with
0: teens specifically, why is this so important? Oh,
2: it's so important. Because (laughs) um, teens are figuring things out. Mm -hmm. And they're also hugely social creatures. We all are. But if you can remember how important it was to have a group or to know where you belonged at school. Like, where do you sit at lunch? Even if you only sit with one other person, you know where you belong. And so teens are already watching in this very particular way. And generally teens are going to have made an opinion about you before you even say hello. So with teens, and when I'm working, like basically I just, this is going to sound weird, but I feel like I get watched, right? People are deciding how I am and who I am based on who I talk to and how I hold myself. So if I go into a teen space, I always talk to the grown-up first because generally that person and I have corresponded. I don't cold call groups of young people. Um, I always check with their adults first. So that person and I will have some kind of relationship. And then that way, based on what I, I guess, feel in collaboration with that other person, I know that people are figuring out who I am and how I am based on my body language. We also know from different studies that teens often make mistakes around facial gestures. They might read faces incorrectly, but they're also looking at more than that. Like they're looking at how you hold yourself and who you know and how you fit in their space. It's another really good reason why going out to visit is really important. So that they can see how you are in their space Mm -hmm. before you invite them into your space. Because they're only going to come if they trust you. Does that answer the question?
0: It totally yeah. does. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Let's do the listener okay. questions. Karen, what, okay. do you want to ask the listener questions? Because sure. I feel like I asked a bunch of questions in a row. Okay. And also, well, <laughs> you talk to these okay. guys.
1: Okay. Toria, um, her question is wanting to know about the role between twe- tween and new adults. So maybe she's looking at, I think she's... Thinking about the, the ages that are book-ending, maybe traditional teen ages.
2: Okay. Yeah. And she wants to know how to serve them? Um, I think she just said she just wants to know about it. Okay. Yeah. So hopefully this answers the question. Mm-hmm. We have found, I would say, at Vancouver Public Library that tweens are often super engaged. They might already feel comfortable, but our tween book clubs are bumping. They're full of kids. And then they become teens and we have much fewer people attending. So it is definitely a different age range and the services are, are different. I think if we're talking about reading material, tweens are likely to read up, as they say, right? right. And might be reading some of that young adult material. Again, we like, parents are responsible for their kids' borrowing when kids are 14 at Vancouver Public Library, that means that they can get their youth card. And that means that at that point, they've separated from their parents' card and their parents can't necessarily check what's on their library card. But for tweens, that is still the case, that it's, um, the parents can, can do that. New adults is a really interesting age range. I think that when I think about that, teen material is still relevant depends on where that young person is in their life because yeah. it's not like you like tick, 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 ding, hit 19 and suddenly <laughs> yeah. you're an adult and you know everything you need to know. Um, but all of a sudden you can't go to teen programming.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm curious about like you get transitional, if there's like transitional support or programming. Not um, exactly. And I think that this is something that, well, I I know
2: that in the teen services department we're talking about, How to provide support and whether that would be, this is going to sound bureaucratic, whether that would be the teen department or whether that would be the community librarians who serve 19 plus, or would it be the programming and learning department downtown? It it could be a variety. So those young people, let's say a 20 year old, could easily attend some of these other programs as well. It's not like they can't go to quote adult programming. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that it makes me think of is there's um, a repair, like a clothing repair program that I found by accident by looking at our website for teen (laughs) programming, because the programming and learning department, I think had put it in as teen, but also teen, adult, seniors. Like all ages, basically. All ages, Mm -hmm. except the young ones that can't thread needles. And yeah, that's a relevant program. And so I take that poster out and I promote it because I think teens should learn how to mend their clothing. But also it's good for those 20 year olds as well. So I can't say, I mean, hopefully I've partially answered Victoria's question, but in that way, I think that that is an area that we're looking at and maybe is in flux.
1: Thank you. I'm sure that's great. Another thing Victoria was curious about was how to enforce codes of conduct while not alienating teens in the library. Another really good question. One thing is
2: you can't ever be their buddy. So when I think about alienating someone, I think about what relationship I might have with that person that would cause them to feel alienated. And when I say you can't be their buddy, I just mean, and I say this as someone who taught high school at 19, like you just can't go back and just be one of them because you're not, you're the librarian or the library worker. So I would say for not alienating anybody while enforcing that code of conduct, again, I go back to the body language because if you come in playing like you're the power structure, you're setting up a conflict. But if you come in like you're unsure of yourself, then why would they listen to you? So I think being direct is really important. I think, don't use the word policy. It is our policy that you don't eat in the library. Like, don't go there. Be casual. Hey guys, oh, I did this to somebody yesterday. Uh, he walked in with a box of food and I said, Hey, guess what's not welcome in the library? And he looked at his lunch and he looked at me and he said, food. I said, yeah, (laughs) if you could eat in the sun, that would be great. Come back in after. Um, so in that way, keeping it casual, being direct, don't beat around the bush. Don't make the other person try to figure out what you're saying. Um, So I guess part of that is on some level you kind of have to internalize what that code of conduct is and then just be kind but also not be a doormat if that makes sense. I hope that that helps.
1: Yeah I think that was really interesting. Thank you. And then we had a question from Anita who wants to know what did library school like how did library school prepare or not prepare you for working as a teen librarian and also she was, she wanted to know, like, what surprised you kind of coming out of library school and like working as a, I guess, a postgraduate real adult?
2: Woo! Okay. Somebody asked me a few years, no, I guess maybe five years into being a full-time librarian, um, do you use your library degree? And I had to think about it for days or maybe even a week. Um, and the answer is yes, I do use my library degree. Um, I think that knowing how organization is how information is organized and also what information could exist and some of the channels to get there I think was really useful. So I think on some level yes it was really useful and it prepped me in this background kind of way. But I was also unprepared uh for the first thing that always comes to mind is having to deal with the plumbing, um, which is not something they ever talked about in Slace. But the, my first job right out of library school was with Richmond Public Library. And at that point in time, I'm not sure how it is now. I was there for two, two and a half years. And at that point in time, the person who was the librarian in charge was responsible for the facility, which meant when our toilet overflowed, that was my job we didn't have somebody else on site who would come fix the toilet. I spend a lot of time talking about plumbing, but my point is (laughs) you may end up uh, being in charge of the facility. And if so, that was a really useful thing. I think something else that I was unprepared for was the level of busyness. Like, yeah, you're busy as students. It's true. And you have to manage time as students. But a lot of that is maybe in your head, You have to organize your time and your thoughts and your papers and your homework. Um, You have to organize some of the input, whether that's studying or watching things or meeting with people. But I think having other people make demands of you all the time. The phone rings. The person comes to the desk and wants a thing. There's a teenager who's eating and they want you to go deal with that. Uh, Also, you need to write a report and put in your statistics and fix five calendars. Like, all at the same time. So that level of input I think was a a bit of a shock. Something that I think new grads should be prepared for is to feel confused. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that really came to me when I was working at Richmond Public Library and maybe it was my first day or maybe it was my first week, but I remember being on the big information desk at the Brig House branch and a patron came up and said, where's your stapler? And I had no idea. And it was just such a simple question And the feeling of being adrift and not being able to answer a really simple question, get ready for that because it's Mm going to happen for a long time. Hopefully that
0: answers the question. Totally does, I think. Okay, thank you. You run this program called Kith and Kin. Connection Connection to Kith and and Kin. Yep. We could talk about it for a long time because I know you've done like hour-long presentations about it at conferences. But, in a nutshell, the highlights. Ha! Huh, okay. <laughs> uh, the highlights. Um, Not the low light, no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the struggle, no. Um, okay, highlights. This was something that community partners asked Vancouver Public Library and Library and Archives Canada to bring forward, and mm-hmm. I think that that's a really important piece. That was Aboriginal Life in Vancouver Enhancement Society, Northwest Indigenous Council and Our Place, which is run out of RACAM. The RISE Leaders, which is Responsible Indigenous Strategies for Empowerment, they, I I had worked with them for a while, and they came and, or their coordinator asked me if they could come to the branches in my neighborhood to find out information about Indigenous place names. And that's information isn't kept in the branches it's kept downtown at central library. So I said, we don't have it in the branches. Do you want to come for a tour of special collections? And they said, yes. So they came down and the special collections department knocked it out of the park, did a great job, showed them all kinds of resources. And one of them was the card catalog of photos. We have the library cards. Um, And on one of those cards, a young person found uh, that we had a photo of her grandfather's boat. And then Special Collections went and found the photo and she could see it. And then that turned into a conversation about what other library resources might exist that had information about their families. And I said, would you like to have a program about that? Would you like to explore that further? And they said yes. So I had done some pilot workshops with young people, maybe three or four And because I talked about that at some of the community meetings that I go to monthly at that point, that's when Aboriginal Life in Vancouver Enhancement Society, Northwest Indigenous Council and our place officially proposed to the library. Like we had a meeting with managers and LAC and we all came together at these tables um, to talk about the possibility of bringing this into the community in a neighborhood-based way in a place-based way, where people are comfortable, and so that was really the start of it. Um, I, the library, had to go think about that. Took us a little while, and to her credit, Megan Langley, who's the manager for neighborhood services, um, made space in the org- organization for this to happen. And then in January 2019, I was given the go-ahead to put this together, based on the input. And the connections I had with these community groups. And that's really important to mention because this involved a lot of uh, taking suggestion, talking about it with the library, going back to the community and saying, okay, like this? Did we get that right? And then they say yes or no, or have you thought of this? And then I go off and I figure it out, talk to the library, get Library and Archives Canada, and then back and then over and then back. So that's really I think, how that started.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Karen's That's like, so wow, all the cool community-led yeah. special collections wow. stuff in the world. <laughs> it's like, Karen.
2: <laughs> so a couple other things to mention mm-hmm. is that I really insisted on a trauma-informed approach to this. Yeah. Uh, I took the Aboriginal Focusing Oriented Therapy and Complex Trauma Certificate from the Justice Institute of BC. hmm It was a year-long certificate program, um, which I am so grateful for that opportunity and also really informed what I bring to this program because I think we cannot talk about these documents without talking about um, trauma and genocide. Like We have to acknowledge that when we are looking at records, as I'm sure you know, the things that we find in there have an emotional effect, just like you were saying earlier. Um, So as librarians, we need to be able to sit with people as they have a reaction, as they have a moment. Um, We think about if you know there's eight kids in the family, but there's only seven on the census, why is that? And to be able to sit with someone to support them while they're Uh, working through that we are not counselors we are librarians but we need to be more trauma-informed and we have to be um, able to uh, hold people up and be in a good way Um, when I started putting this together uh, I felt pressure from both the community not in a bad way not in a bad way and everyone was totally lovely but my own self I was feeling like don't screw it up, right? Like these people have asked, I have a chance to deliver, don't screw that up. And then also the institution, the library was trusting me to do this, also don't screw that up. (laughs) So I was like, I was kind of stressed for a while. Um, But the trauma informed piece is really important and it's one of the things that makes this program different than other library programs. Another element of that is that we have cultural support in the room provided by the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. That was something that it's not the library's role. Like, we can't determine what cultural support is. And it's one of the foundations of the program. So when I was putting this together, I was out talking about this in community at different meetings. I went to the Seniors Elders Advocates meeting. At Britannia and I went to the elders participating in community meeting at Hastings to talk about this and also to hear, to to gauge interest, but also to hear how we could do this well. And in both places I was told in no uncertain terms that we should be working with the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. We are really fortunate that Vera Jones is a Resolution Health Support Worker with the IRSSS and also is connected with Britannia. So she's on the board and she's also a regular attendee and a helper, I think, at the 55 plus center as well. So she's already connected here and we're really, really, really so fortunate to work with her. And that piece is really important. So we have community requests that this program came out of. We have trauma-informed practice. We have cultural support. This is part of what makes this program what it is. That said, I really think that we could, like this kind of programming can be done across Turtle Island. If different organizations have those pieces in place, it needs to be in relationship with the community that they're working with. So this is not something to go approach a local nation about and be like, hey, we can offer you, no, like have a relationship first. Under like that trust has to be built. Trauma informed practice is fundamental to this because when I was putting it together, somebody asked me, What's the worst thing that could happen? And at the time I thought, Oh, someone might be disappointed. And then I thought about it and no, actually, the worst thing that could happen is that somebody sees something or learns something that opens them up in such a way that they can't close back in a healthy and good way. Suicide is the worst thing that could happen. So how do we take steps to support people to make sure that everybody is able to um, bring themselves back together? So that really, small groups, really important. Don't do this with 20 people. Managing a room of 20 people and also having support for 20 people, that's, that's too much, so keep it small. So that trauma informed piece is really important. And like I said, community, community-led community and cultural support. So that could look different in different places. Library and Archives Canada has been amazing. They, this is a real stretch for them. It was new, I think. Uh, we are really lucky that we are, Library and Archives Canada has a regional office connected with the Vancouver Public Library. It's in the government tower next door. And they have hours at our level seven special collections desk. So they're already, we're already working together. But Library and Archives Canada has a national mandate. And so I think that it's unusual for them to do this really, really, as Marnie Burnham, the, the manager says, like hyper local approach. And they're, so they're learning from this experience and they're looking at how, as a national organization, they might be able to work with other groups and other organizations Across this land, maybe not in the same way that we have been so fortunate to have, where we've got archivists in the room. I should also mention that we register for participants. We have one archivist and two librarians, and Vera from the Indian Residential School Survivor Society as a resolution health support worker in the room for this workshop. So it's not 20 people. It's pretty staff intensive, and that's been a challenge because we have to. Advocate in this world that likes stats and statistics as a measure of worth. We have to be able to advocate for the worth of this program with really low numbers. So that is ongoing. I could talk about this forever.
0: I know you could. Well, let me ask you one other question about it. Okay. And not, not, not in a bad way that I know you get. And that it's very interesting. But, um, this program came, out of a request from a team and now from what I understand you're providing support for people to access it that are like all different ages. So that's really cool because VPL, the library where I work, actually every public library that I've worked at has these very defined children's team, teen team, adult team, and never the three shall, (laughs) rarely the three shall collaborate, let's say. (laughs) Sometimes, but not that often. So... What was it like to do this intergenerational programming and do you think that is a thing libraries could do more of, should do more of? What would it take for that?
2: (laughs) So I think that, just as you said, libraries tend to be really delineated about their staff and who serves whom, but while libraries do that, our community partners don't necessarily. And I think that that is another element of working with community and being responsive. So there are some examples at Vancouver Public Library of like reading buddies that have teens and little people together. Or um, we had, what did we call it? Um, Taste, Teens and Seniors Tech Experience or something like that. (laughs) Um, And that was it, seniors and teens working together with devices. But you're right. There's way more room for that. And I think when we work in this community-based way, I think of Raycam as a really good example of that. They um, bring people together in a really cool way. So they they have a program. I think it's on Thursdays. I think it's called Brighter Family Futures. It's been a while since I visited, but there's little kids and there's older kids and there's grownups and everybody comes together to to eat. And then there might be a workshop for the older grownup type people. I think that we can have collaboration between those departments. I think that's really important. And I think because we do specialize and we do have expertise, like I work with teenagers, I know more about teen brain development than I can expect the adult programming team to have, team to have but we can do that. I think libraries need to value this work and prioritize this work because I think library staff generally want to be helpful and want to want to work together and want to do cool things. So I think that that intergenerational programming is really critical to building community in a holistic sense. And as we look at the role of libraries going forward, how can we bring people together of different ages to whether it's in conversation or whether it's programming, um, I see that happening with other organizations, maybe more than it does with us. So, however, Connection to Kith and Kin is a really different example. We've had maybe 10 to 15 young people come through. Most of our participants are older, like 40 plus, maybe Mm -hmm. 50 plus. And everybody's great together. Like it's actually not, I, I guess, when I think about how do we prepare for that? Well, we don't necessarily, we treat everybody like a human. And I, I guess it just happens really naturally.
0: That makes total sense to me. Yeah. I find it quite weird that, like, there are all these rules around how old you have to be to participate in things. But anyways. <laughs> well, I think I think also about our super successful
2: teen program, which is the Like, we usually have a Harry Potter program around wintertime. And whether it's the Yule Ball or whether... I can't remember all the different titles it's had but we have adults try to get into that and we have little kids try to get into that. But really, we make it for teens. We want to do teen-appropriate activities. Adults might be bored with that. Little kids might find it hard. So part of that is a skill thing, but with something as personal as connection to kissing and kin, we're meeting people where they're at. We're working with them no matter what their computer skills are
1: or their understanding
2: of how information is put
0: together. So it depends on the program. Mm-hmm. I think it's also a scale and staff resources thing, right? Because like a program like the Yule Ball that we could imagine, you could have teen appropriate activities and kid appropriate activities or adult appropriate activities in one event, but then you would need more staff there and a bigger space and resources and things like that. And obviously with Kith and Kin, that's the case. You've got almost a one-to-one
2: ratio. (laughs) That's a really good point because we just did a program at the Central Library for the LRP program, which is Leadership and Resiliency Program, which is a team. It's, it's in schools. It's a partnership between SASE and Vancouver Coastal Health. Shout out to LRP. And also, you should go fund them. Um, the They have a, a family night. Um, and so we had that at the main library. After hours, Central Library, little kids, like babies in arms, parents, kids. And we did have a bunch of staff and it worked really well. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So we hadn't really done something like that before. So good point, absolutely. Cool. Yeah.
1: So in closing, is there something that you wish more folks, whether they're librarians, archivists, or general community members knew more about teen services, community-led work, or trauma-informed librarianship, or anything else that you do?
2: I think the what I would say is to take risks, even if you're afraid. At first I, was, I thought, oh, maybe I should say, don't be afraid to take risks. But no, actually, take risks, and it's okay to be afraid. I think that, well, I go back to something that one of my community partners told me, Annie Danilko. she said, if you do something for the first time and it goes perfectly, you should have been doing it all along. So take those risks. I think another thing is to find who your allies are in your organization, in your community partners, find out who you can work with and build those relationships because that together will bring, will build the net that we use to help hold everybody up, even if they're not in your organization or your department.
0: Thank you. And I know you're not a super computer-y person. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, How could they do so?
2: My goodness.
0: Um, (laughs) I would say email me
2: at my VPL address, which is A-R-I-E-L dot C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L at V-P-L dot C-A. And I don't know, you could mail me a letter. Um,
0: (laughs) We won't put your address on air. (laughs) No, send it to the Britannia (laughs) branch. 1661 Napier Street. I am on
2: LinkedIn under Ariel Caldwell. I'm also new at LinkedIn, so be kind.
1: I think that's it. Okay, cool. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. It's my pleasure, really.
1: It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That was really (laughs) wonderful.
1: We can be found on twitter at organizing pod that's organizing with a z and on an s our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com and our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com where you can find links to things that we've mentioned as well as transcripts to the episodes